This is My Years Through My Ears, a series about influential songs that have shaped influential lives. Each guest breaks down the soundtrack to their life story, picking the most personally impactful songs to represent each chapter along the way. My name is Andres Tardio, and today's guest is Shay Serrano. He's a writer, a host, a philanthropist, and other things. His story is an inspirational one, going from humble beginnings to a career in education to the New York Times bestsellers list. Shay sitting down with me just after launching his No Skips podcast with my man Jinx, Brandon Jenkins, and just before dropping his newest book, Hip Hop and Other Things. What's going on, Shay? How have you been? Good. Staying busy, you know, staying out the world, just in the room. Same here, man. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, Before we get into your actual playlist, I want to go back to the beginning of your story. What were some of your earliest memories with music? My mom is from uh, Michigan, from Detroit. So it was like a lot of Motown stuff that she was listening to. She also like had a big thing for, for Bob Marley. So when she would get lit up, like, you know, start drinking early in the night, you knew you were going to go through a Motown set and then a Bob Marley set. And then when my dad got on there and he started drinking, he was going to start going through his stuff, which was a lot of, a lot of like classic rock and then a lot of Norteño, like Tejano type music. Cause you know, his, he's from Mexico. His parents are from Mexico. He was like a, like a stereo guy. And he's like, I got the, I've got this receiver with these amps and these speak, like he's doing that whole thing. So just seeing how much he was into it, I think that's more than the music itself is what rubbed off on me. Like he just clearly cared a ton about it. Oh, I, I used to hate this thing that would happen when I would, like this is high school age, I would go out with my buddies and we'd be out just sort of doing whatever. And then you come home and it's like, you know, 1230, one o'clock in the morning. And I walk in and I, I can hear the TV on. I know my dad's awake and he's just sitting in the living room, like drinking and watching a fucking like an Austin City Limits cassette of Stevie Ray Vaughan performing. And then he's like, Mijo, come sit with me. And then I got to fucking sit there for 35 minutes while he tells me all about whoever it is who's on the TV or making me watch old concert footage that he fucking has on VHS. I like I find myself doing that with my kids and I'm like, oh, you, we're going to listen to like the low end theory today. And let me tell you all about the people who made, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I feel myself doing that same sort of shit. We're listening to the music that our parents play when we're younger. And then we start to listen to the music that we want to listen to, uh, which leads us to our first category the preteens. I asked you to pick two songs to represent this stage of your life. The first song that you picked was Ninja Rap by Vanilla Ice. (laughs) What made you go with this song for your first pick? It was music made for like a nine-year-old, which is what I was when when it came out. I just fucking loved it. And so I had that. Plus, you watch Ninja Turtles, Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, and there's that great scene in there where they're fighting and they bust into the club and Vanilla Ice is there. I was just so excited to to see this thing because, yeah, right around then is when you start looking for the stuff that you want to look for. Like, you 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 begin to develop your own interest. I don't want to listen to fucking La Tropa Efe anymore. I want to hear, like, some stuff that I like. And I just really liked Vanilla Ice. I really liked the Ninja Turtles. This was the convergence of all of those things at once. 
this was something that would carry over for the for the rest of my like through my adult life. I really like when different parts of pop culture sort of fold over onto themselves. Like like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air episode when Boys to Men shows up, and you're like, oh shit, it's like all of the things. Seeing the Ninja Turtles dancing to Vanilla Ice rapping, and you're nine years old, just it doesn't get it doesn't get any better than that. We saw that at the drive-in in San Antonio at the time. They had this thing called the Mission Drive-in, and you paid like four dollars for your car to get in and however many people you could pack into the cars how many people got to see the movie so that's how we would go to the movies and i remember being at the at the drive-in we're watching this movie they're rapping i'm with like 17 of my cousins sitting in the back of a truck and it was just the best time of my life The second song that you picked uh, to represent your preteens was Rump Shaker by Rex and Effect. What made you go with that one for your second song? So this is the first like rap video I remember seeing. You're 10, 11 years old or whatever, and there's this woman on the beach playing a saxophone, pretend playing a saxophone in a bathing suit. I really enjoy thinking about or talking about parts of a song that you can hear like one second of and you know exactly what, what song it is. Like, it, like if you play that first key from Runaway. And you're like, I know what song this is. Or the first key from Still Dre. If I get one second of a song and I know what it is, then I'm going to I'm gonna really care about it with Rump Shaker. That saxophone, man. I can see it in my head right now. I can see that woman pretending to play the saxophone on the beach in my head. What do you think these songs, Rump Shaker and Ninja Rap, represent for that time period in your life when you look back and, and you think about the preteens? There was not some grander meaning that I can think of. I, I, again, we didn't have cable at the house. We weren't like doing a lot of shopping. We grew up. I grew up. We were like, you know, food stamps or Section 8 housing or whatever, like. I I wasn't like consuming a lot of pop culture as a nine or 10 year old. I just got whatever happened to be in front of me. And in this case, those two songs, more than the other ones are like just the ones that remind me of the best parts of being that age. Let's move on to the next category, the early teens. What was the first song that you picked to represent your early teens? Funkified by The Brat. It came out and it just was the coolest thing in the world. And it was The Brat, her and Jermaine Dupri, and they're doing like their very, very best Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre impression. The video came out, she was wearing that, I don't even know what it's called. It's like whatever that print shirt is with the buttons at the top that all the Mexicans were wearing at the time. And I was like, oh shit, is the brat Mexican? What's going on here? I love this. Uh, Jermaine Dupri is doing what Jermaine Dupri does, sort of just being five foot four, bouncing around in the in the video. And it was just incredible. G-Funk is like my favorite subgenre of rap. But this is probably because I was 12, 13, 14 years old when it was like the biggest sound on the planet. That version of rap is the most enjoyable it's the most fun it just feels like 
like being at the park with your friends. What was the second song that you picked for your early teens? Murder Was the Case by Snoop. You could have picked any song off of the Doggy Style album. That album came out in late 93, like November of 93 or something, if I'm not mistaken. Snoop was the biggest rapper on the planet in 1994. When you say 1994, the first thing everybody thinks is Illmatic or Ready to Die. One of those two albums or for some reason you start thinking of Tupac just because he was such a big figure later on but nobody was bigger at the time than Snoop was again nobody was cooler than Snoop was and he showed up he was tall and he was skinny and he was like pretty much a cholo which we thought in San Antonio was awesome he was like turning into dogs in his music video it was incredible he had the best the best rap voice that I had ever heard I didn't know anything about Slick Rick at the time. I didn't know like like this is the new version of Slick Rick. Right. I just heard Snoop and I was like, I've never heard anybody sound as smooth as Snoop does here. That Doggy Style album came out and I loved it. I went crazy for it. And Murder Was the Case. I ended up picking that one over, you know, Gin and Juice or What's My Name or or whatever. Because this was the first time that I could remember in my life hearing a song and then having somebody else be like, Oh, did you know this song is like actually about a thing that happened in his life? And I, I, I said, I did not know that. Tell me more. Tell me every single piece of information you can, because there's no internet at the time. You can't Google it. You just have to trust uh, that somebody who's older than you is going to tell you the information you need to hear. This was the first time that I had that experience of being like, oh, a song means a thing. And I thought that was really incredibly, incredibly interesting. And then from there forward, I was like, oh, well, what does every song mean now? What, how does this relate back to the art? You know, you're a little bit more mature at that point. You're starting to chase to chase those things down. Right. Because up until this point, it was like, oh, this song is clearly about the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you get here and you're like, oh, this person has a real life. This thing happens to every person at some point in their life. You're like at the mall or the grocery store or something and you see one of your teachers from school. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, this is a real person. Like, you realize right then, this is a real person doing other real things. They're not just waiting in the classroom for you to show up. And this was like my moment for that with rap. This is also the first time that I could remember listening to uh, a CD instead of a tape. Everything before then, I was like recording it off the radio on cassettes. And then this was like an actual CD. And you would hold the CD player in your hand and try to keep it as still as possible. Because those first ones, if you... If you breathe too hard, it would skip. And you'd be like, no, no, no. Like all I wanted to do at the time was sit on the bus and listen to Doggy Style over and over and and over again. I was just talking with Laramie, my wife, uh, about this exact thing because this when, the, when this album came out, it was 13, 14 years old or headed in that direction, which is how old my sons are now. And so we're driving around and we're listening to, uh, we're listening to like the album in full, not with the kids, it's just me and her. And the song Ain't No Fun comes on. And I was like, man, can you imagine one of the twins? The twins are 13 years old. Can you imagine one of the twins like just walking around the house talking about if corrupt gave a fuck about a bitch, I'd always be broke. Like, I can't imagine the things my parents were were thinking when I'm singing the things that I'm singing in the in the house. I couldn't I, I couldn't do that with 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 my kids, you know. Thank you.
what do you remember most about that time period of your life when you think back to Little Shay listening to Functified, listening to Murder Was the Case? In between those things, what were you like? What were you experiencing at that point in your life? So at this point, you know, we're talking about 13 to 15 or whatever. So you don't have a car yet or none of your friends have a car yet. You're just like on on your bike with your buddies. But we were living at the time, I mean, I grew up my whole life in this in, in this area, in the south side of San Antonio, this neighborhood neighborhood called Valley High, which is like not that great of a place to to grow up there. Everybody's poor. It's like kind of a rough spot. You know, your people are sort of in and out of jail. The adults in your life are anyway. But it never felt treacherous. It didn't feel like anything other than like I'm growing up a little bit and my parents, you know, this was 20 years ago or whatever it was. It was a different time. It was like not a, not an issue for you to just like be gone. So you just sort of like meet up with your friends and then you're just out in the street figuring out whatever it is you're figuring out until it's time to come home. So the, all of this music that I'm listening to around this period, you know, Functified Murder with the Case, the, the Chronic. I, somebody had a Wu-Tang album, which was like, this doesn't even sound like it's from planet Earth. It's not what I'm used to hearing. Regulate, fucking regulate was everywhere. Like all of that music just reminds me of being out in the neighborhood for the first time with no adults around. It's just me, Miguel, the Mata brothers, and everybody has one white kid in your group. Is this boy named Barry and this kid Mario. And we're just fucking ripping and running doing whatever, going to H-E-B and like shoplifting because we didn't have any money, like this sort of thing, you know. That's what this reminds me of here. It just reminds me of being out in the neighborhood, going to the park, playing basketball, like a low-stakes fight in the parking lot of the movie theater because you can't get into the movies if you can't sneak in. Like that, that's what that reminds me of, just being with, with my friends, causing a tiny bit of trouble. All right, Shay, let's get into the next category, uh, the late teens. What was the first song that you picked to represent your late teens? This is what, 16 to to 19. This is when you're like really, really developing who you're going to be as an adult with your tastes or whatever. And for me, the first two songs that I thought of when I was trying to picture this time in my life, number one was Crush on You by Little Kim and Lil C's. I remember watching that video and just being like, this is the most incredible song I've ever heard. This video concept is unbelievable. It's just her and him with the backup dancers and the color palette keeps changing. And each time she's in a different wig and different outfit. I mean, Lil' Kim is one of the greatest rappers who has ever ever lived. The way that she raps, she says words with like the same sort of aggression and velocity that a machine gun lets bullets out with. It's so intentional and so sharp and so straight line to where it's headed that it was just like unreal. So pairing that up with the production on the song, which is really smooth and and not quite sultry, but almost sultry and just effortless is what it felt like. My cousin Brian had one of those TVs that had like a built-in VHS in it. And so you could record straight off of the TV, like super easy. He would record a bunch of videos all of the time. And we had like a, a fucking collection of old VHS tapes with old rap videos on there. And that little Kim crush on you video was like on six of the eight tapes. Cause we just wanted to make sure that we had it. 
we wanted to preserve it for society. What was the second song that you picked to represent your late teens? The Rain by Missy Elliott. Now in my head, I believe like I'm a full-fledged adult at this point. We finally, finally, after years of petitioning my parents, we finally got cable at our house. So it was like you would wake up in the morning, you would turn on MTV, and they would play the videos while you're getting ready for school. The Rain video would come on. Man, forget about it. I was so absolutely in love with Missy Elliott. I just thought she was the coolest, the smartest, the most creative person on the planet. And that song really, I still love, I think it's a perfect song, like an absolutely perfect song. All right, you're listening to Missy. You're listening to Lil' Kim. These are your late teens. What was that time period like for you? So this is when... I can remember being like, all right, it's time for me to get out of here. It's what it felt like at my house. Because we lived in a little tiny house at the time. It was like three bedrooms, maybe. And when I ended up leaving for college, I was 17, 18 years old. When I left, there were 14 people who were living there. And that's just fucking too many people in a house, number one. But there's certainly too many people in a house when you're 17 years old. I was ready to go. I felt like I needed to get out of San Antonio because I was watching at this point. I had seen like the neighborhood gobble up some of the people I cared about the most, be that family members or like friends. It was just like Valley High is not going to let go of these people. They're going to be here forever. I did not want that to happen to me. I felt like I was two decisions away or something from like, all right, this is now it's time for you to, you got to do like your first, your first bid in jail. And so 17, 16 years old, you start realizing, like, I got to make some decisions here. That's the feeling I can remember is just being like, it's time to, it's time to go. It's time to, time to get out of here. I bought a little car, a little like shitty $2,000 car that my parents got with their, with the tax refund. And then I'm just like, I'm out in the, I'm out in the world now. That's all I'm, that's all I'm thinking about. What can I listen to in the car? What sounds good? You mentioned this idea of knowing that there was something else, right? What do you think it was that allowed you to see that? It was a combination of two things. Number one, I'm certainly not built for like that life. I'm not built to go to jail. I'm just not going to survive. So I've been terrified of that forever. More than that, it was my mom who was just like, you got to go. Before I realized that it was time for me to go, she was like, you need to go. Nobody in my family had graduated high school. Like nobody. Uncles, aunts, cousins, whatever. Nobody had done it. Certainly nobody in my immediate family had done it. My, my mom got pregnant with me when she was in school. She had to drop out. Like it was like she knew already what this looks like, what the next 30 years look like if you don't do something different because she had already done the other version of it. So she was the one who was like, you have to go. I didn't even want to leave. I don't want to make it seem like I was this really like smart or insightful kid who knew that bad stuff was going to happen if I didn't stick around. I didn't think about any of that stuff until she sat me down and told me that this will happen. Look at your people here. Look at this person. Look at that person. Look at that person. This is what's going to happen to you if you don't remove yourself from the situation. And I will always remember her telling me, I, I like had to apply to college, whatever. So I applied to some schools and I got into this school called Sam Houston State, which was like four hours away from San Antonio. It's a little tiny school. 
Um, it was the only one that I applied to and it was the only one I got into. And the only reason I applied to it was because there was a girl that I liked and she was like in a college prep program and they make you apply to a school. And I was like, fuck, I don't know. I'll do that one, I guess. And I filled out the paper and sent it off. You pay like 25 bucks. I happened to get in because they needed more Mexicans there. They were doing like that whole thing. And so I'd take all these remedial classes and shit when I signed up because I was just like not smart. But I got into Sam Houston and I got the letter and I showed my mom and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, check this out, ma. And she was really proud of me. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go to college or not, but at least I got in. And she was telling me I'm 17 years old at the time, 16 years old. She was telling me, look, you're either going to go to Sam Houston State. I'm either going to drop you off there or I'm going to drop you off at Fort Sam Houston, which is like the military base. You're doing one of those two things. Come your 18th birthday, you will not be living in this house. That was really all that it was. It was her more than anything else just because she already knew what the rest of it looked like if that didn't happen. And thank God she fucking did. All right, we are now in the 20s. And for the other stages of life, you know, we were working with three-year increments, basically. But the 20s, and I don't know if you feel like this, the 20s just feel like they go by so quickly. And so we put it all together as one category. Um, and here we are. So what was the first song that you picked for your 20s? And I think that that's an exactly correct way to see it. Because 13 feels so much different than 16. But 23 and 27 are like, what? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened during these periods. The only, the only way that I keep track of that time period is like by, by basketball championships. Like, that's how I know what was happening. I know in 2007, the Spurs won the title. They beat the Cavs. That's how I remember that my sons were born that year. And then I got married that year. And then I started writing that year. But yeah, 20s is like one big block of time. The two songs that I picked, the the first one, I cheated a little bit here because I love this song. I love Ha by Juvenile. I think you have to be a genius to write this song, like an actual writing genius. But this song came out back when like the rain came out. You know what I'm saying? Like the late, the, the, the late nineties. So I cheated because I wanted to include it. So I just like bumped it up to my twenties. I said, well, at 20, I was like in college. Uh, cash money was like really, really big. I'll just pick. That song. But you could have picked any cash money song. You could have picked this. You could have picked the, the block is hot. Um, hot girl. Like whatever. But ha for me, that's the pinnacle. There's not enough time for me to say all of the like great things I think about this particular song. He was just so smart. It was so creative. It was so well done. It was one of the earliest times I can remember of a song or an artist just being like, I'm not going to try to do what they're doing in New York or L.A., this is what's happening right here. Here's what it looks like. And it was so sharp and so insightful and so perfectly packaged that immediately I felt like I knew what it was like to be in uh, Louisiana. I just wanted to have that song in there. And just to be clear, this was not the first time that an artist had done that. I think the big flagpole moment was at the Source Awards when Andre did the whole, like, the South got something to say thing. That's when there was, like, all right, we're separating ourselves from, from that. But I didn't watch the 95 Source Awards. I didn't have cable again. But when this song came out, this was the first time I could remember being like, oh, shoot. Like, this is a whole new thing. This is completely new. And this is like on a big stage. This is not like when you get the writing dirty, UGK's writing dirty tape, 
that someone handed you, that someone else handed someone else. This was like on the biggest stage possible. This is on MTV and it's like the number four video or whatever. Like this is, it was out there. And man, I fucking love Juvenile. What was your favorite of the hotlines? <laughs> and I asked that because it, like one of my favorite aspects of the song is that everything is so random and yet so specific. Like you switched from Nikes to Reeboks is one of the lines. And I'm like, oh, he had to be talking about somebody who was in the studio while he was recording it. It's that specific. That's exactly what it is. That's the hardest thing to do is to talk about a thing that you're seeing in front of you in a way that makes it accessible to everybody else. Like you have to be so, so incredibly specific that it becomes available to everybody. You know what I'm saying? Nas is clear in a way like best ever at this. He'll say a line in a song. What's the line that he has on it on Elmatic? Oh, he's, 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 he's talking to his buddy who's in jail. And he's like, I heard... The like translated version of it is I, I heard you like slice someone with a razor over the phone. And you're like, oh fuck, like that's that's a line that you say if that's a thing that you really know has happened. And as soon as you say it, oh, okay, cool. I understand like what this world looks like or who this person is he's he's talking to. And that's what that's that's the entirety of what high is. He says a line and you're like, This is somebody in his life. You got served a subpoena for child support, huh? Oh, he knows somebody that this happened to. Oh, like you switch from Nike's to Reeboks. And, oh, shit, like he he probably made fun of somebody who did this, or somebody made fun of him. But he's saying that, and it's so specific, and it's so directly related to him that it shouldn't be available to everybody else. But you listen to him say it, and it feels like you're just in that world. That's like an incredible trick. That's the dream of every writer is to be able to do that. I want to write something so well that when I say it. Somebody else reads it and they go like, oh, this is like the, that version of this. And this is one of the earliest times I could remember of, of a rapper saying a thing in a song. And he's like saying it as a bad thing. And I thought it was a good thing. The line specifically I'm talking about is you got a lot of Jabot jeans, huh? And I was like, at the time, I thought Jabot jeans were the coolest thing in the world. And he said that. And I was like, I'll never wear Jabot jeans again because clearly they're bad. Clearly they're, they're, they're terrible. He, I thought I was bragging. He is making fun of me. Man, what a what a song. What a great song. What was the second song that you picked to represent your 20s? The second song that I picked, I wanted to jump forward a bunch. I wanted something when I was a little bit older. I was a father at this point. I was living like what I thought was an adult life. It was Can't Tell Me Nothing by by Kanye West. Kanye West shows up. This is off the graduation album. And it just made me feel so good. I loved how confrontational it was. I loved it like, whoa, that part that's it. Like all of the pieces were just to me the best thing. This is the album that I was listening to when I very first started uh, my writing career. I was like freelancing for the the newspaper as the nightlife columnist. Once a week, I would get in my car, go to some bar or some club, hang out there, interview people, dig up whatever story I could, and then write about it. And this was the album that I can remember playing on my way to like wherever I was going. Always this one that just made me feel like, oh, this is like a this feels like a cool part of my life right now. This is so much, so far removed from what I was doing in San Antonio, but 
only superficially all of the other parts are the same. While we're talking about it, the line that stands out to me right now for some reason is don't ever fix your lips like collagen to say something when you're going to end up apologizing. You know what I wonder with that line specifically? And this is the second time I'm going to bring this guy up because I've been researching him for like the last four months for the rap book. But I wonder if Kanye saying that line, apologize, is like in any way related to how Nas every so often would like missay a word or like misname somebody. Like I'm like Sly, Sly Stone and Cobra. And you're like, Sly Stone is, that's not Sylvester Stallone. That's a whole different person, Nas. But nobody cared. Nobody cared because you're so good at saying all the other stuff that you just assumed, oh, he like said it for a reason. He didn't mess up on accident. There's a reason here. I just got to unpack it. Good morning is another one. Yeah. He calls a seatbelt a, a safe belt. I'm like, all right, it's a safe belt now. Kanye was, Kanye used to be just the best. He just used to be the best. We left the coming of age years of your late teens with you deciding, I'm going to head out. I'm going to see what else is out there. So what were your 20s like? The early 20s, I'm in college now. This is like the first time I experienced culture shock. Because again, I grew up on the south side of San Antonio. Predominantly Latino. Almost exclusively Mexican. If we drill it down even further, every room that I had ever walked into was filled with people who looked like I looked and sounded like I sounded. And their last names ended with a vowel or an S or a Z. Some of them, maybe they weren't documented. Like this was like, you know, that was where I was coming from. Every single person was that. And then I get to college and it's not, it's the opposite of that. There were 15,000 or so people at the school at the time. And there were like a hundred Mexicans there or something. It was wild to me to walk into a classroom or to like walk through the foyer area and it being like predominantly white people. Early 20s, that's, that's what it was. I graduate, I'm like 22 or 23 years old. I, I have at this point met Laramie, who I just fell in love with immediately. She graduated. She said uh, she's moving back to Houston, which is where she is from. And I was like, well, I don't want to go back to San Antonio because I know what's there. Can I come with you? And she said, yeah, come on. So I just followed her like a puppy to Houston. I got a job in construction. It was available to me and I needed to make money. So I did that for two years. And that's, you know, that takes me to like 25, 26 years old or whatever, which is the first half of the 20s. And then in 26 or so, 27 is when I became a teacher. I like was doing my construction job during the day. And then at night I started taking these alternative certification classes because I want teaching was what I had wanted to do for, for a long time. I got that job. We got married. We had kids. We bought like a, a town home. I, I thought we were grown. And those two songs to me like stick out of my head as being, well, that's that first part. And this is that this is that second part. Couldn't tell you nothing at that point. You couldn't tell me nothing. I was like, guess what? I have $700 in the bank. I'm fucking rich. You can't tell me nothing. Let's get into the 30s now. Uh, what was the first song that you picked to represent your 30s? first song that I picked here is a Kendrick Lamar song. And I think this is the most underappreciated Kendrick Lamar song. It's called Untitled 2 from his Untitled Unmastered 
compilation album that that came out between To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn. I think Kendrick Lamar is, is the best rapper of the last 10 years or so. This was the album that when it came out, I was like, this fucking guy's throwaways are better than everybody else's hardest working stuff. I was just all the way in on Kendrick. I it, And it took me a while to get there too. Section 80 came out and I was like, okay, this sounds like a lot of the stuff that I've heard on the internet. And that's going to be the biggest difference here in like how I was consuming music. In my 30s is really when I got on the internet. It was like, that was a part of my of my life now. I have access to these tapes that I otherwise wouldn't have had. Section 80 shows up and I was like, okay, this is like not, this is, this is pretty cool, I guess. And then Good Kid Mad City came and I was like, oh fuck, this is, clearly this is brilliant. This is, I'm going to mention them for, for the third time. This is like the new Illmatic is what this, is what it felt like listening to that, to that tape. Just, just like young artist writing in this really interesting way. He mixes up a lot of the like verbs and nouns and his and stuff on on purpose to make it sound a certain way. I was all the way all the way in, so I was big time Kendrick fan from then forward. And when this one came out, I was so excited about it. I just I just loved it. I thought he was the best. I still think he's the best. I, I can't think of somebody I trust creatively to put out a song more than I trust Kendrick Lamar. And it's been years since he put a tape out, and still I'm like, if he if if I if I like got an alert on my phone right now that said a new Kendrick thing dropped, I would, this would be the end of the interview. I would just be like, I got to go. Sorry. I'll catch up with you later. I got to listen to this thing first. We would have to pause it because I would probably do the same. And then we just get back and talk about it. it. (laughs) We would listen to it together. I agree. Kendrick is phenomenal, phenomenal. What was it about this song though that made it stand out to represent your 30s? I liked how borderless it is. It just feels like it, it floats into existence and then he says a bunch of shit and then it floats away. There's no like edge to it, you know? It's just there. That's to me what my 30s have felt like. I kind of remember turning from 29 to 30, but not really. I just woke up one day and I was in it. And now I'm at the like end of it again. And I'm like, oh fuck, what happened? What are the hard like what are the hard points of that? I don't quite remember. And that's how I feel about this song. I never remember like how it starts or how it ends, but I know that it does start and it does end. And that's how I feel about my 30s. What was the second song that you picked for your 30s? The second song that I picked for my 30s was this song called Fed Up by Cousin Stiz. Cousin Stiz is an artist out of Boston, but again, the internet shows up. I'm able to find this music I otherwise would not have been able to find. I found this tape. Somebody sent it to me on Twitter. I'll always remember it. Somebody was like, hey, you you seem to like music. You like rap. Have you checked this out yet? And they sent it to me and I listened to it and I was like, this is kind of great. And I kept listening to it. And the more I listened to it, the better that it got. Cousin Stiz is very much, to me, an inspirational rapper, an aspirational rapper, like the stuff that he's saying. This song especially, where he's like listing the stuff that he's fed up with. And I thought that that was like, when I heard it, a part of my life, that's pretty much how I felt about a lot of stuff. I was like, man, this shit is not working out how I want it to be working out. I, I need to, to, to fix this. I remember this tape came out right around when I had left teaching. I left teaching in July of 2015. I became like a full-time writer 
I went to work at this place called Grantland in July of 2015. So like July 1, my contract is up. July 7, I start at Grantland full time. And I'm like really excited about it. And then in October of 2015, just a couple months later, Grantland shuts down. And it's like, welcome to journalism. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, well, fuck, I don't have a job now. I was just like in this weird spot. I don't know if I'm going to go back to teaching. What am I going to do here? And this tape showed up and he was saying a lot of the stuff that I was feeling. And that's, I think, one of the like great things about rap is when you find an album that's saying the stuff that you're feeling that you don't quite know how to say. And every time he would start talking on there, I was like, oh, that's what it, that's what I have in my chest right now. Oh, I get it. I get it. Like, you know, just I love him. I love him for that. I was listening to both of these songs, right, back to back before this. And he's obviously talking about all of the things that have him fed up. And one of the first lines on Kendrick's Untitled O2 is, I'm sick and tired of being tired. And man, it just made me think about your 30s. I was like, man, the 30s must have had Shay fed up. The 30s are tough, dude. They're tough. You're, because you are, here's an analogy or, or a comparison or a metaphor or whatever. This is a thing that happened to me when I was a kid. And I will remember this feeling forever. We were at the lake. We were at Canyon Lake in San Antonio. It's about an hour away from San Antonio. And I'm there with my cousins and my sister. It's like a family trip. We're all out there. I'm maybe 12 years old at the time, 13 years old. And my parents rented us one of those, like a paddle boat, you know? Have you ever seen them things that you sit in them and you pedal your feet and you can cruise around? It's like 20 bucks for two hours or something. They rent us one of those. We're asking for them, asking for them. They give us one. And then we're like, all right, cool. And we pile on it. Me, two of my three younger sisters are on there, and two of my cousins. So there's five of us on there, the two cousins, this boy named Jesse and this boy named Gary. And they're they're a few years younger than me. They're like five years younger than me or so. So I'm the oldest one. I'm 12, 13 years old. That means Jesse is seven or eight years old. Gary is six years old. Everybody's around that same age. But we get in this paddleboat, and we paddle out to what we feel is the, about the middle of the lake. This lake is fucking big. It's not like Lake Superior big, but it's big for San Antonio. And we paddle out to the boat, and I'm like, man, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fucking swim back to the shore. And they're like, you can't. That's too far. You can't do that. And I said, I could do this. We don't have life jackets or nothing. This was in the, this was in the 90s. You don't have to wear a life jacket. I could do this. I got this. And they're like, all right, I guess go. And so I jump in the water, and my cousin Jesse, who's seven or eight, maybe nine, jumps in too. And he's like, I'll go with you. And, and, and Jesse, if you ever were to meet Jesse, all of these pieces line up because he eventually like joined the military. He's a, he's like six, three, 200 pounds of just muscle. Like he's done several tours in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. Like he's one of the guys who goes out into the, like, that's the person he is. Like, like he's going to be on a SWAT team type shit. But so Jesse's like, I'll go too. I don't care. And we both jump in the water. Neither of us have a life jacket. And we start swimming. And so the, the paddle boat is in the back uh, in the middle of the lake. We start swimming toward the shore. And we get like halfway there. And I realize we're not going to make it because I'm my arms are on fire right now. And I look back and the paddle boat is however uh, 200 yards away or something. And the shore is 200 yards in the other direction. And I realize, we're, what can we do? We're trapped. There's nothing we can do. And my body just filled with terror because Jesse at this point 
he's been swimming with me. He's already crying. Like he understands that we're about to go underwater and there's nothing. Who's going to save us? There's nobody else out here. And, and I will always remember that feeling of being like, fuck, we're at the halfway point and there's no easy way. There's no easy exit. That's what the thirties feel like to me. You're, you're at, at this point, you probably are married. You have kids. You realize that your parents are not going to be, or if they're still around, they're not going to be around much longer. It's just going to be you. And you have a lot of space left that you need to go. And you can't go backwards. It's just as far as going forwards. And you're just sort of trapped. And you got to figure it out. You got to make that shit happen. That's, that's, that's what a lot of the 30s have felt like to me. Like all of the hardest shit in my life has happened during this period. And it kind of sucks a ton. It kind of sucks a ton. And the best thing you can hope for is that you have a, somebody who's going to go through it with you. And like every once in a while, and this is what we ended up doing, Jesse and I, we're going and I'm like, all right, here's my plan. You can't make it. The water at this point is maybe like 10 feet deep. I'm going to go underwater to the bottom and I'm going to put my arms up and you stand on my, my, my hands and maybe you can like take a break, you know? And this was like the, the idiot plan that we came up with. And like, you just need somebody who's going to do that, like do that shit with you when you're in your thirties. Thankfully I have, you know, Laramie with me, but, but yeah, that makes sense that without even thinking about it, these would be the two songs that I pick because I'm real fed up with a lot of stuff. Now you eventually made it. How did you eventually make it? And going along with that, how did you make it through your thirties? Okay. So here's the, the second half of that story or the, the point of that story is when you're looking at the shore and it's that far away, however far away it is, you don't have to make it all the way to the shore before you can touch the ground. You know what I'm saying? Because the, there's no like big drop off the lake. It's very gradual. So if you're looking for a point here, it's never as like hard as it looks like it's going to be. And I think that's what it is with your, with your thirties. Like there's a, there's a lot of stuff that you have to do or are responsible for, but it's never going to be, as hard as you as you think it will be. One of the things I always mention whenever I'm talking to to young people, young writers especially, and they're like, hey, how do you stay uh, motivated or find inspiration to write this, that, or whatever? And I'm like, hey, listen, this is like a job. This is not me. I'm not like in a coffee shop in like a turtleneck waiting for this brilliant idea to hit my head. It's not like I'm fucking sitting at an ugly desk in an ugly shirt typing away, hoping something works because this is the work that I have to do to get the money that I have to make to pay for the stuff that I have to pay for. Every, every single day that I wake up because I have three kids in my house and a wife and, and I'm like the person who has to pay for everything. Every single morning I have at a bare minimum, I have to provide at least 15 meals that day, every single day for the rest of my life, or at least until the twins get old enough that, that they leave the house. But that's what I think of every single time I wake up in the morning. I'm like, okay, cool. 15 more meals. Here we go. Do the work. Do the work. Do the work. And, you know, that's all that it is. You're making that swim back. It's just fucking one stroke at a time. Now, when the site shut down and you were faced with the possibilities for the future, how did you maneuver through that? When the site shut down, we're like, all right, well, that's the bad news. What are the details here? How is it like, what does this look like for me? And I, this was, the site was run through ESPN. So ESPN, their, their people reached out and they said, okay, the site is closing. So you no longer work here. However, you were under contract 
until July of 2016. So we can either A, let you out of your contract right now and you can go work somewhere else or B, you can just like not do anything until for the next eight months. And I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll do that part. That seems like a good, and I'll do that thing. And so I had eight months of like figuring out whatever the next thing was. I did another book during that period. I was like, I signed another book deal anyway during that period. I started as the, as my contract got nearer to ending, I started having places reach out and offer me other jobs. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, again, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. There are probably some people who have answers to, to a lot of stuff, but I've never been one of those people. I'm just like, well, let me just see what happens when I like try to do a thing. So that's, that's all that it was for me. I'm just like trying to do the shit as I, as I go forward. And sometimes you mess up and sometimes you don't. It's like that with work. It's like that with being a husband or a father. You like realize immediately when you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And you're just like, well, I got to fix this. You know what I'm saying? That's really all that this is. It feels like. All right, Shay, we have come to the end. Now, when you think about this playlist and you think about the songs and you think about the experiences that we talked about today, what do you think this playlist says about you and about who you are? If I look at this playlist as a whole, it looks like I don't know a lot about putting together a playlist. I don't know what's happening here. The rain to hot, I can't tell me nothing to untie. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the bigger... The bigger picture is here. What did happen, though, when you asked me to put this together, and this is a thing I've been thinking about because I'm working on the the new rap book or finishing that up, is like, man, rap has been in my life for so long. It has been the soundtrack to so many of the things that I have experienced. It has been the like the battery in my back in, in some instances when I didn't think I was going to be like able to make it through a thing or it's just really like a beautiful thing and I think anytime you can sit back and sort of appreciate that or just think about that or be grateful for that is is like a cool moment so I think because of that I just want to say thanks for having me on the show because a lot of a lot of times you don't do that you know you've got so much shit going on you don't take a lot of time to to sit down and like look backwards and what think about why a song meant like a thing to you but I did when I was working on this and it was cool. It was real cool to think about all that stuff again. This was the third episode of my years through my ears. Special thanks to Shay for sharing his story. Please check out his new book, hip hop and other things, as well as anything else he does on the podcast, TV or writing tip. Man's a genius. The theme song for this series was provided by Atmosphere. The song that you're hearing is called Anybody That I've Known, and it was used with permission from Slug Ant and Rhyme Sayers. Additional music was created by Chase Moore. Tune in soon for another episode. Like, review, subscribe, and do whatever else podcast hosts usually ask for here. I'm sure it's all very helpful. Until next time, I'm out. Or as my son likes to say, Peace out.